Well, let's reach for our Bibles, and once you have them, would you turn to Matthew chapter 18, which if you're following along in our Bible reading plan, you would have read earlier this week and probably had all sorts of questions about it because it is a dense, deep, and wonderful chapter. As you turn in there, I'm going to start off with a question, um, and raise your hand if your answer is yes. How many of you have found that today it's harder for you to be holy than it was a year ago? I'm willing to raise my hand and say it's harder for me to be holy right now than it was a year ago. Anybody else feel that way about their own life? Some of you. Yeah, lots of you. Okay, yeah. Something about dark times something about trials, something about temptations that Satan just puts right in front of us make it more difficult to stay holy in some seasons. And it leaves us with so many questions. If that's made it so hard to be holy, why would God allow stuff like this to happen? Why is it God's plan that I would walk through all of this darkness and have so much trouble clinging to holiness in it? And how do I stay holy through all of that darkness? Part of the answer is in seeing yourself as a child of God and understanding just what it means to be a child of God. So today, we're going to look at the first 14 verses of Matthew chapter 18, where we're going to ask a couple of questions. How does one become a child of God? And once you have become a child of God, what does that mean? What is it like to live as a child in his house? And then finally, how does that spur us on to holiness in dark, tempting Times. Let's look together at Matthew 18. We'll start in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling a child, he put him in front of the midst of them, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better for you to enter into life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray... Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that even one of these little ones should perish. The words of the Lord. Through them, may he comfort you and call you to more and more holiness in these dark times. Before we dive into the message, let me just give you a few tips for reading the Gospels. As we read through this, one of my commitments is just to give you as much help as I can on the regular act of daily Bible reading that we're all going through together. As you read the Bibles, there are a couple of questions you can keep in mind that really help you with the Gospels. 
The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are four different tellings of the story of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. And they are concerned with a couple of big questions. One of those questions is, who is Jesus? And another one is, what is it like to follow Jesus? These books are written for Jews or Gentiles who have heard a little bit about Jesus, maybe heard that he died and rose from the dead or are kind of interested in him. And these people want to know with certainty so that they can have real faith, okay, what is true about Jesus? I heard this about him. I heard that about him. I heard he's a good man. I heard he died and rose from the dead. I heard he didn't die and rise from the dead. What's the truth? What really happened in Jesus' life and what's he like? And then if I want to follow him, What's it really like to follow him? I see some people who say they follow him and they live like this. And I see other people who say they follow him, they live like that. What does following him really look like? The gospel writers want us to have certainty about these things. Luke says that himself. John says he wants us to believe and have life in the name of Jesus. So they're very concerned with who Jesus is and what following him is like. When we get to chapter 18, He's focused largely on what following Jesus is like, what it means to be one of God's children. But even that is rooted in who God is and in his character. So we ask a couple of questions. I've already asked them once, I'll ask them again. First, how do you become a child of God? And then second, what is it like to be a child in God's house? And then third, how does that make me more holy? How can I chase holiness better because I know what it means to be a child of God. So first, how do you become one? And while we're there, why do so many hear the gospel and not become children? Why do so many people say no when they hear the gospel invitation? Well, here's where we find an answer. In verses 1 and 2, the disciples, grown men, walking with the greatest man who ever lived, are concerned with greatness. They're already great. They want to be even greater. And so they're asking, all right, we got eternal eyes here. We see that you're bringing the kingdom of heaven in. There's about to be a regime change here, and you're going to be in charge. Who gets to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, they ask. And implied in that question is, do I get to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What do I have to do to become the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus uses this as a teaching moment. He plays college professor. Somebody asks a question. He says, well, I'm going to give you a whole lot more than you asked for. So he calls a child to come forward. We don't know how big. We don't know if this child put on a pedestal in front of them is soaking up all this attention and like, oh, everybody's looking at me, or if they're sheepish and if they're there holding their blanket scared and don't know what to do. But here is a humble child in front of all these grown men. And in that day, that said something, because people looked at children a little differently than we do today, but in some ways the same. What was the same then? is that people really prized and valued their children, just like we do today. And parents were not willing for even one of their children to perish. They did a lot of safe things that kept good care of them as much as they can. Much like today, when you get that car seat and you put your child or your grandchild in there and you're fastening that thing and getting it just right and it's throwing your back out and you still don't get it right, so you drive down to the fire station and let the fireman put it in just right and then you put the child in. You want to keep that child really safe because they're very valuable to you and you protect what's valuable to you. Well, they were like that in the first century too. So much that they would even judge women based on how many children they had born because children were that valuable to them. 
But one thing that was a little different is that children received no honor and had no status in their world. Now, in our day, whatever kind of jeans the kids are wearing, we try to wear those jeans too, right? Because like youth is the prized thing. To them, every year of your life got you more honor. If you were 75 and you know somebody who was 80, you had to look up to that 80-year-old and give him honor. And you had many people in your life who looked up to you because you were older than them. And who is the youngest of all on that tree? It's the five-year-olds, the six-year-olds, who have to look up to everybody and give everybody honor. Nobody gives any honor to them. Nobody is concerned about what a child thinks of them or whether that child likes them or not because they're just a child. That's how they looked at it in that day. So children were prized, they were protected, but they were not honored. You were humble to be a child. So you might even say valuable, but also pathetic at the same time. That's how they looked at kids. So Jesus takes this valuable, but humble and kind of pathetic child and puts them in front of them. And then he says, I tell you the truth, if you don't turn and become like this child, you're not even going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Forget being great. You're not even going to enter the kingdom of heaven. But whoever humbles himself and becomes like this child, they'll be great in the kingdom of heaven. And here is one of the secrets of what you must do to become a child in God's house. You have to be willing to humble yourself and become a child again. This is so contrary to what's naturally in our hearts. In our hearts, we're grown-ups, right? You want to be the captain of your own ship, and you want to steer that ship wherever you want to go. You want to be the driver in your car, and you want to drive that car wherever you want to go. The last thing in the world you want is to have everything in your life given to you by somebody else and have no authority or control over any of the things in your life. To have to follow the rules in somebody else's house, that doesn't sound appealing to any grown-up. No, we are self-made people. We earn what we have. We worked hard to get it, and we can do what we want to do with it. That's the grown-up spirit. That's how we want to live. And Jesus says, if you want to enter into my kingdom, you got to turn from that. And that word turn is very important in this passage. He doesn't say you got to keep doing what you're doing and humble yourself and become like children. He says you got to stop doing what you're doing and change course and humble yourself like a child. This means that if you have not turned from sin and come to Jesus, then the path you are on, according to Jesus here, with no turning away from it, you keep going the way you're going, he says you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven without a change of course, without a turn. Why? Well, because we want to be captain of our own ship, right? We want to be the grown-up. We want to be the one that earns everything we have, and we want to be the one that chooses how to do what we do in life. And he says, if you keep captaining your own ship, just driving it wherever you want to, you take your ship on a joyride, it's only a matter of time before you hit the rocks. It's only a matter of time before you wreck that ship. He says, you get in a car and you take the driver's seat with blind eyes, put a blindfold over your eyes and just say, I'm going to drive this car wherever I feel like. I'm going to turn the wheel wherever I feel like. It's only a matter of time before you smash into a brick wall or another tree, or God forbid, another car. 
He says, if you keep being captain of your own life, if you keep being the man of your own house, you keep being in charge of your own life, he says, this is the way that leads to destruction. You have to turn from this, humble yourself, and become like a child if you want to be a child in God's house. This is something like the humility it would take for a grown man who has lived on his own for, say, 20 years, been earning his own income, left his father's house, living on his own, and through a series of his own mistakes, he just loses everything, invests something in a scheme that doesn't work out, tries something at his job that's foolish and loses his job, puts his house up in some way and loses, uh, loses it all, has no contacts left, no way to earn money, no job, and no roof over his head, no food. And so admitting that he has wrecked his own life through his own foolishness. Now, men in the room just know what this could feel like to have to do. He goes back to his father and says, Dad, I can't do it. I've, I've wrecked my life living my way. Can I come back and be a child in your house? Now, I think every man in the room knows what a blow to your pride it would be at 45 to have to go back to your dad's house and be a child again. This is something of the humility we must have when we come back to Jesus. We must be willing to say, Father, I have wrecked my life trying to live it my own way. All of my devices, all of my work, all of my ideas, they have only earned me condemnation in hell forever. This is what I've done when I've been captain of my ship. But can I come back? Can I come and be a child in your house, living under your rules, receiving not what I have earned, but what you have earned for me? Can I be a child again? He says, unless you humble yourself like a child, you cannot come back and enter into the kingdom of heaven. You have to be willing to go from self-sufficient adult, seeking greatness, back down to humble, dependent child to enter through the gate into the kingdom of heaven. There's a biblical story about this, and maybe it's already come to your mind as I talked about it. The story of the prodigal son. He's a son who receives his inheritance early. He asks his dad for his inheritance early, actually. Leaves his father's house with great wealth, and he goes and squanders it. Spends it on partying, on friends, on prostitutes, on all sorts of things, and ends up with nothing. So he is a servant in someone else's house pouring pig feed into the trough, looking at the pig feed and saying, I'm so hungry, I want to eat this food that the pigs eat. And it just dawns on him that the servants in his father's house eat better than that. He says, I'll go, I'll go be, a, I'll humble myself and go back to my dad as a servant and be a servant in his house. And he finds there open arms ready to receive him. But to get there, He's got to humble himself and say, even the servants in my father's house have it better than this. And so if we want to come back to God, we must humble ourselves there. Now, the broad focus of the whole Bible is that in our own lives, what we have done in and of ourselves, just living life our way, being captain of our own ship, we have earned for ourselves eternal condemnation in hell forever. Even one sin against God is worthy of that. And how many have we piled up? 
To receive forgiveness, we've got to come back to him because the Father has allowed his own son, Jesus, to shed his own blood to earn forgiveness for our sins. We can come back. There is a way back. The emphasis here in this text is that part of coming back is humbling yourself and saying, what I've done isn't enough to cut it. I'm going to need to be a child in this house instead of man of my own house. And maybe for some of you, that's the call that you need to hear right now. Maybe you've never turned. Maybe you've always walked the same direction your whole life. Never turned and say, I will leave captaining my own ship and I will let Jesus captain this ship. I will come under his leadership. I will be a child in the Father's house again. If that's you, don't wait till the end of this message to do it. You're not guaranteed another breath. This may be the last moment when you can turn and come to Jesus. So just do it right now. You don't have to do any magic hand motions or come down an aisle or anything. Just put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ and find their forgiveness for your sins. There is not one self-made man at the cross of Jesus. There are only humble children coming back saying, can I be a child again in your house? So come and be a child in his house. That is something of what it means to become a child of God. Now, once you do, what's it like? You can imagine a foster child, which one of the great tragedies of the world is that foster kids are bounced around from house to house. Every year or month, they might be in a new house and drives with a social worker to a new home and they get out and they're standing at the sidewalk looking at this front door and this child is thinking, I'm about to become a child in this house. They're going to have all kinds of questions, right? One of those questions is going to be, how rich are these people? Like, am I about to walk in and get a new iPad and a pair of Jordans? Or is everybody hungry in that house? But even more than that, a foster child staring down the front door of a new house is going to wonder, what are these parents like? Is this a house where the parents love the children? Is this a house where the parents hurt the children? What are the rules like in this house where I'm about to go and be a child? And if you're coming to Jesus, you may have some of the same questions about being a child in God's house. What you're going to receive from him is whatever he gives you. You're not going to be able to earn any more. You're going to get what he gives you. So what does he give to his children? And, and what is he like? This is what Jesus begins to answer next. Now, there's a transition here in verses 5 and 6 that I want you to see. In verse 5, he says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now, he has said that already about the disciples. You receive my disciples in my name, you receive me. Well, now he says it about one such child. So is he talking about the kid he put in front of them, or is he talking about the disciples? It gets a little confusing there. Well, the next verse answers that. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. All right, so he's, he's made a switch. Now, he's, he's told them you've got to become like children to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, he is referring to his own disciples as children, as little ones. So when he talks about little ones here for the rest of this passage, he's talking about me, and if you follow Jesus, you, his disciples, his people. We are his children when he says little ones like this. With that in mind, knowing that he's talking about his disciples when he says little ones, let's look at verse 10 to see something of the Father's heart toward us. Does he value his children? Are we just another 800 bucks a month from the foster system and who cares about us or does he care about us? Verse 10 tells us. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. 
For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. The Lord has created this entire species or race or whatever you want to call them of heavenly beings, angels in heaven. And their whole purpose, the book of Hebrews says, is to serve those who are going to receive the kingdom one day, to protect and deliver messages to and care for us, his church. You believe that? God's children walking through the world, and he says, I'm going to create a whole army of fantastic creatures just to protect them, get them all the way there, and serve them forever in the kingdom. And in the heavenly throne room of God, the ones who get to go into God's presence and see his face are the angels commissioned to protect you and I. That is how valuable even the most insignificant of us are. That whole species would be created just to do that. So he says, don't you despise even one of these little ones. Every little one of them matters to him. If you're a child of God, Every one of you matters to him. And we can rejoice in that. We can see a story of it too in the next verses, 12 to 14. He tells the story of a shepherd who has lost one sheep out of a hundred. And he says, isn't that shepherd going to go and search and, and track down that lost sheep and then celebrate over it, even leaving the 99 in the field? Now, why is the shepherd going to do that? If you own a hundred of something in your collection and you lose one, well, it's just a 1% loss. If your IRA comes back at the end of 2020 and it says you lost 1% for the year, you might be a little disappointed, but your thought's probably going to be something like, well, I hope we make it up next year when things recover, right? You lose a percent, maybe we can make it up. But children are different, aren't they? Children are not pennies on the dollar. Right? When it's just wealth and money, I can take a dollar from my wallet, you can take a dollar from your wallet, we can trade dollars, and who cares, right? A dollar is a dollar. They're not individually meaningful. But when it comes to kids, when it comes to sheep in a flock, it doesn't work that way. If you've got 10 children, you take them to the park. They all play. You pack them all back in the van, or at least you think you do. You get back home, and you have nine children left. You are not going to say, well, that's a 10% loss on the day, are you? No, because every single one of your kids matters to you. You're not willing that even one of them should be lost. Shepherding sheep is the same way. The sheep weren't just wealth to those that owned them. They would name them. They would care about them. The sheep knew the voice of their shepherd. There was affection between them, and every one of them mattered to that shepherd. So if he loses one, he doesn't think, oh, I'll just make that up next year in the birthing season. I'll be okay. No, he goes and he finds that one sheep because every single one of them matters to him. When he comes back with it, he rejoices more over them than he rejoiced over the ones that never went astray. That doesn't mean that he loves the wayward more than he loves the rest of us. It just means that if you've ever had children and you've ever thought about one of them running away one day, but then that one came back, you would all be pouring out your affection on the one that came back because you don't want to lose even one of them. In fact, the point is in verse 14. It is not the will of my father that even one of these little ones should perish. That's the point. He is not willing for even one of you to fall away and perish. This means that if Satan were to go before God in heaven, 
And he were to say, okay, I will make you a deal, God. I will never harass anyone again. I will not do my work anymore for all eternity if you would just give me this one of your children. And let's say that your name is in his mind. And he says, just give me this one and I will do whatever you want for all eternity. Before he can finish making that offer for your soul, the father's answer is already firm, irrevocable, and clear. No, I'm not willing that even one of them should fall away. There is no price on earth that I would take for even one soul of my children in my kingdom. Do you see, child of God, how valuable just you are to him? If you were the only one, how valuable you would be to him. And it is as if you were the only one when he is looking at how prized you are before him. So that's the point of that story, just how valuable each one is. His children aren't wealth to him. They aren't things that you can trade away. No, each one matters the same way that you look at your children if you have children. Now, when you prize something that dearly, you protect it passionately, don't you? If you've ever had a prized thing and somebody has threatened it, there's an emotional reaction that comes out in you. It's not robotic. It is emotional and human and real. And with some of these other word pictures he paints, Jesus is telling us that the Father is the same way for us in his protection of us. We see this most clearly, I think, in verses 6 and 7. Look what he says there. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. Do you see the fire in his eyes when he says this? Woe to the world. For it's necessary that temptations come, but see the fire in his eyes here. Woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So on one hand, it's necessary that the temptations you're going through and the darkness in your life right now, it's necessary that it be there, but woe to the one through whom that it comes, he says at the same time. Why is it necessary that temptation be in your life? Well, the other pages of the Bible make clear that one of God's big goals for human history, if you're one of his children, is your holiness. His goal for all of this, the reason he shed his son's own blood, the reason he is ushering you through all this, the reason he will send Jesus to return and restore all of us, the whole point of it all is to present a holy and spotless people to his son Jesus as a bride. Part of that plan is those people need to be holy people. So Jesus shed his blood to make us pure. And he puts us through these trials and tribulations to make us more holy in this life. James 1 says that those tribulations are here to produce steadfastness in us and strengthen our faith. First Peter says in a few ways that they are here to prepare us for glory. We're going through darkness. You are going through whatever darkness and temptation you are going through because God wants to make you more holy. That's the point of it. But at the same time, he says, woe to the one who brings that threat. If he cares about your holiness enough to bring this level of darkness into the world just to make you holier. When there's a real threat to your holiness, he says, woe to that threat, because he cares about your holiness. 
You can see the fire in his eyes when he says, woe to the world for temptations to sin. You can see that protective mother bear spirit come out in him. And the point here is that his protection of you is not so much like the valiant secret service agent that would lay down his or her life in the line of duty. It's more like the mother bear who gets her claws out and roars when her cubs are threatened. There is emotion and passion in the way that he protects you. I can remember this happening to me once. My family was a water skiing family. We grew up on the lakes in boats doing fun things like that. And when you grow up around those things, you get really comfortable around those things. And when you get really comfortable, you get really willing to do dumb things behind a boat. And so we would do dumb things sometimes behind a boat. We would, uh, we would tie some inner tubes to the back of the boat and uh, just, you know, go riding all around. And the way that the game worked was that the driver's job in the boat was to sling you around so violently that you were thrown off of the tube. And your job was to hang onto the tube and not die. And it was such a fun game. So me and my dad would do this. My uncle would be driving in the boat, slinging us all around. He was really good at driving it in a way that created certain kinds of waves. And you know the waves would compound on each other and be like eight feet high. And then he would sling you at high speed through these waves. And as if this weren't dangerous enough, my dad and I and my friends, we would all do all kinds of silly things. We would, sometimes I would, because I had longer arms, I would hold the two tubes together, right? And then whoever was in the other tube would climb over me and get into the tube that I was in, and then I would get in their tube. And so then we could say, ha we switched tubes or you were trying to throw us off. Well, my dad and I are doing this one day, and we hit a massive wave and I just go flying up in the air and my tube flips forward and goes like this. And so it crashes me in between the tube and the rope that is in front of it. And the rope went around my neck like a noose, latched on and drug me through the water as the boat was going. And thank God my uncle saw the thing and immediately pulled the throttle off of the boat. Probably saved my life doing it. I came back up, rope burn around my neck, not knowing what was going on, scared, disoriented. And I don't remember much about what happened afterward. I was probably a real grouch about it. But the one thing I remember vividly is the image of my father who was in the other tube swimming faster than I have ever seen a human swim to get to his son and make sure that his son was okay. And I could see in his eyes the fire and the passion my boy is not going to get hurt today if I have anything to do with it. That zeal, that passion in the eyes that says, no, not one of them is perishing. Child of God, that is how your heavenly father feels about you. Every time your holiness is threatened through temptation. There are many times in the scriptures when God does protect his people. Jesus says to Peter, behold, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. And you're not going to fall away. When Moses walks through the desert, it's said that God guarded him like the pupil of his eye. They go through the Red Sea and not one of them perishes in the Red Sea. The last one makes it out and the sea collapses onto Pharaoh's army. Over and over again, God miraculously protects his people. We see that in his character as we read the Bible. What we see here in this passage is why. It's not just because he promised to. It's because it's in his heart to care that deeply for every last one of his children. That is his heart toward you. 
if you were a child of God. As you go in that front door, that's the way your father feels about you. He loves you that passionately. So our last question more quickly is, if my holiness is that important to God and he goes through those lengths, not only to test me, but to protect me in that temptation, what should I do? How seriously should I take my own holiness? And the answer is that we should take it very seriously. If our holiness means that much to him, if on the refrigerator list of priorities to God, high up there is our holiness, we should take it seriously too. And this is what Jesus means in verses 8 and 9. Let me read them to you for a moment. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands to be thrown in the eternal fire. And then he says essentially the same thing again. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away, for it's better to enter into life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Let's do the math here, church. Do we really believe that one sin is enough to be condemned in hell forever? If you believe that, then you must have a serious view of sin. Sin must be that big of a deal that one more sin is enough to condemn anybody to hell forever. If sin is that big of a deal, and if our holiness matters that much to God, that means the amount of zeal we should have to make sure we don't fall into that next sin, we ought to put our all into it. And this imagery he uses here, let, let's not be insensitive about it. People we know have had these sorts of things happen to him. Emily and I have a family member who lost his hand in a farming accident when he was very young and he's older now. And many of you might know people who either cannot see with their eyes or do not have an eye or are missing a limb and unable to use it. Some of us, this could happen to tomorrow. And all of us, if we live long enough, will eventually get into a bed that we will not be able to get out of if God gives us the years. And what he's saying here is that if we are in our right minds in those situations, the day after you lose your hand, the, the day that you realize I'm not getting up off this bed again, if we're in our right minds then, we would say, I would rather never get out of this bed again than sin one more time against God. There's that much evil in sin. I would rather never get to use this hand again then sin one more time against God. There is that much evil in sin. And if we can say that and mean it, then if your phone is tempting you toward anxiety or toward foolish speech, it would be better to just go through the inconvenience of not having a phone than to sin one more time against God with your words. Or if your boyfriend is luring you into sin, it's better to just not have a boyfriend than to sin one more time against God. If robbing yourself of sleep is making you grouchy and making you mistreat people in your life, it's better to just have to go to bed an hour early than to sin one more time against God. Can you see how seriously he wants us to take our holiness? This, too, is part of what it means to be a child of God, to say the rules in this house are good. 
I'm going to follow them. And whatever convenience or luxury or anything in my life I have to give up to make sure I don't sin one more time against him, I will do it. So there we have something of what it means to be a child of God. To enter in, you must humble yourself and say, I'm not man of the house anymore. I'll go be a child in your house. Once you are in, you will find their blessing upon blessing. One of them is a father who loves you with zeal and protects you like his prized possession. And if he cares as much about your holiness as he says he does here, then that means, children of God, let us prize our holiness and let us walk in every one of his ways doing whatever we've got to do to make sure we don't sin against him one more time. Let's pray, and then we'll have a time of reflection.